The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. This morning, Romans 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by your spirit you allow us to understand your word. And so, Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Teach us, we pray. As we attend to these matters, Lord, we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On December 17, 2008, a man named Scott Bolzen, anyone know Scott Bolzen? He was 46 years old at the time. He slipped in the men's restroom of his office building, hit his head on the ground, And when he stood up, he could remember nothing about the past 46 years of his life. Nothing. Nothing. He couldn't remember, and these are in his words, his first date, his first kiss with his wife, his wedding day, the birth of his children, all the memories that everyone else in the whole world shares. These are things, he says, I know I should remember. I have no emotional attachment to these, even if I look at pictures. 16 months later, he still hadn't recovered his memory. 
They say that he had an extreme or has an extreme case of severe retrograde amnesia. This is how he described what it felt like. The best word I can use to describe it is just being lost. Because I lost who I am. It was just a lost feeling of not knowing where I am in this world and who I am, said Scott Bolzen. It's a question I want us to consider today. Do you know who you are? I don't just mean, you know, I, I'm Jonathan, I'm a pastor, or I'm Susie, I'm an accountant, or, or Billy, and, and I, I work on the line. I don't, I don't mean that. I mean, do you, do you know who you are beyond titles, beyond jobs, beyond roles, beyond your family name? What defines you? What's your identity? What, what makes you, you? Do you know? You may think, well, I know who I am. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been anxious? You ever been afraid? Have you ever doubted, you know, those, those big questions, the big life questions? You know, how did I get here? Where did I come from? Uh, where am I going? And what does it all mean? Or maybe you've felt overwhelmed by a, a bad choice you made. Maybe you've been burdened with regret. Maybe you feel stuck in a rut. Maybe you're trapped in a destructive lifestyle or a habit. You know who you are. You remember the, those, those Jason Bourne books and those movies, you know? In the movie, he, he, uh, he has this line. He says, I can't remember anything that happened before two weeks ago. I don't know who I am. I don't know where I'm going. None of it. You see, I fear that many, and myself included, we suffer from, from what I'm going to call practical amnesia. Sometimes it's more acute, it's momentary. We have these moments where we just forget who we are, we forget where we are, we forget what life's all about. To one degree or another, sometimes in moments, sometimes in seasons of life, I think that we suffer from amnesia. Practically speaking, we forget who we are. Still yet, there may be some here today who deep down in your soul... You've never really even known who you are, who you're meant to be. So where do, we, where do we go for answers to this kind of a problem, this kind of question? Can we, can we go to our culture? Our culture says you decide what's true for you. You decide what you want to be. Just set your mind to it, right? It, this is sometimes what we hear. Sometimes we... we Maybe tell our, our kids this. Set your mind to it. You can do anything. Is that really true though? Or our culture says if you don't like something about yourself, well, you know, just change it. Even if it's something fundamental. Even something biological. It's okay. You just become what you feel like you want to become. That's, that's what our culture says. And our culture is good at accommodating this, what, what we could call identity confusion. You know, I'm reminded of, of the uh, all-gender bathroom I recently used at a local college. I went to the door, and both bathrooms said all-gender, and I honestly didn't know which one I could go into. 
This identity confusion. Now, I appreciate the congenial spirit that exists in our culture. This this idea of, well, we want to help people wrestle through these things. And that's, that's good. It's good to do that. It's good to ask questions and wrestle through these things. But at the, 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 the foundation here, I don't think our culture is actually answering a question. Our culture simply just says, you just be, like, be who you feel like being. Now, the, the, the trouble that we have with this is, is namely, what happens if who I feel like being is not who I really am? So at the end of the day, our culture is not honest with us about who we are. Because our culture is not equipped to answer the question. So where do we go for answers? There's a painting we're going to put up here. I want to show you. There it is. Anyone know what this painting is? Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi, the savior of the world. Now, did you know this? After 19 minutes with four bidders on the telephone in one room, this painting, this past Wednesday, November 15th, sold at auction for $450 million. Shattering the high for any work of art uh, sold at an auction in history. Earlier, as they were displaying the painting, 27,000 people had lined up at pre-auction viewings all over the world to get a glimpse at this masterpiece. It dates from about 1500. It was rediscovered in 2005. Now, here's the really interesting part. They're not really sure if Leonardo da Vinci painted it. Now, there's consensus among the experts, but the same experts who are saying that, also some of them got a cut, a percentage for restoring the painting. You see what I'm getting at there? Yeah, I'm going to say it's Leonardo's. I'm going to get a cut of whatever this sells for. But there are, to their credit, there are experts who think, yeah, it really is. But there's some who say, no way. Maybe his students, maybe his, his kind of in the school of Leonardo, but it may not really be a da Vinci painting. How would we ever know? How would you or I sitting here ever really know? See, only, only the artist who painted it, or possibly someone who watched the artist paint it, could actually tell you if it's really a da Vinci, right? Isn't that true? You see, I think we're kind of like this painting. We forget who made us. Best we don't live like we know who made us. We, or, or we forget who we are. We need an artist to answer the question for us, and and so that's what I'm going to suggest. Let's go to the artist to find the answer to this question of who am I. Here's here's the, the proposition. Here's what I want us to think about today. That I believe only the Bible, and more specifically, only the gospel. That that great story about Jesus Christ, which is found in every page of the Bible, only this gospel can tell you who you really are. And so what does the gospel say about your identity, about who we are? There's a number of questions that I've put in your bulletin that, that, that I'm, I'm kind of come out of this text that we're going to use kind of as our talking points. And the first question is this, what rules my life? What rules my life? See, Paul, in the first five chapters of Romans, has made the case that we cannot earn our salvation. We can't earn our 
our, uh, earn our, our way or work our way into God's grace. We cannot uh, work hard enough and God will accept us. We cannot escape God's wrath that we are owed because of our sins. And so he has made the case that we must be justified or made right or accepted by God by an, another person's righteousness, namely Jesus's, and that we, by faith, by trusting in Jesus and his righteousness and what he did in his life, death, and resurrection, by trusting in that, we are declared righteous. Or the word that Paul uses sometimes is we are justified. And so Paul, in the last half of chapter 5, introduces this idea that everybody, all people are divided into one of two camps. You're either in Adam, you know, the Adam, you know, Adam and Eve, that guy. You're either in him or you're in Christ. So according to Paul, there's, there's, there's no middle camp, there's no neutral ground. You're, you're either in, in one or the other. Let's think about this for a second, trying to, trying to illustrate this idea that you can't be in two camps at once. You can't be a, have an allegiance to two camps. Maybe I'll say it like that at one time. Imagine if, if, if the Packers running back Aaron Jones didn't know which team he was playing for. Now tell me, if you don't know which team you're playing for, when you get the ball, are you going to run into the, the, the pack? And, yeah, I'm going to go right that way where everyone's going. No, you're going to run the other way, aren't you? Survival. You've got to know which team you're playing for, don't you? To know what to do, to know where to go. Imagine if he tried playing for both teams at the same time. That'd be really interesting, wouldn't it? Think about the confusion going on. And he said, what am I going to gain out of scoring for this team? What am I going to get out of scoring for that team? It's going to be very confusing. Here's the point. It's probably a bad illustration. I'm sorry. But here's the point. You, you can't play for two teams at the same time. And what Paul is saying here is that you can't, be in two realms or, or in both Adam and, and have allegiance to the life that that means and be in Christ and have allegiance to the life uh, that, that that means, what that means. You're either united to Adam's team or you're united to Christ's team. Now, whether you know it or not, right now, you are united to one of these two teams. Did you know that? And here's what Paul says about those who are united to Adam. You are in Adam. You're ruled by sin, which leads to condemnation and death. This is, this is the camp that we're all born into. We all start here in, in the camp, in the realm, in the, the reign of Adam, united to him and, and to his sin. And we all prove that we're united to Adam. How? Because we sin. But there's another camp, another realm that God establishes. And he establishes it through his son Jesus Christ in, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is the realm of grace. It's the realm of life. And for those who are united to Christ, you are ruled by grace, which leads to freedom and to life. Here's how Paul summarizes it. Verse 17 in, in chapter 5. For if because of one man's trespass, that's because of Adam, because of his sin, death reigned through that one man, so that everyone who's in Adam, death is reigning in your life. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
He goes on in, in verse 20 and 21. He says this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. That's meaning law increased sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words... The same law which was once only useful to condemn you, if you're in that camp of Adam, now serves to magnify God's saving grace in the camp of Christ. Here's kind of the argument. Because you might be thinking, well, I don't understand. How, how, does, how does it make sense that, that the law, like, like God's word, the commandments of God, the truth of God's word, the truth of who God is, how does that increase sin? So here's, here's how the, the flow of the argument goes. The law increases sin because the law defines right and wrong. Okay? Next, because we know what is right and wrong, we know that breaking the law is wicked, that it's willful, that it's sinful. We also know that the law even provokes sin. Paul talks about this in in chapter 7. You know, like you hear the phrase, don't covet, you know? And then what do you start to do? You start thinking... Am I coveting anything? Oh, I really like that guy's car. You see, it, 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 we're, we're so weak-minded that we hear the command to not do something or the command to do something, we start thinking about, it provokes us because we're weak. And so Paul says the law increases sin in these ways, and so as sin increases, grace increases all the more because it shows us how generous God is to us because we are so sinful, says Paul. That God is even more generous and gracious to us to give us righteousness, to give us eternal life. And so if you're in the camp of Christ, that grace, that generous grace of God is what rules you. It reigns over your life. So here's, if you want to fill in the blank, here you go. You ready? Everybody's ready. Pencils up. The gospel says... And there is argument about if we should say there are only two ways to live or there is only two ways to live. Maybe we could just say the gospel says there are two ways to live and you can only live in one way. Maybe we'll say it like that. So all the grammatic, grammatarians can be happy here. The gospel says there's, there's, there's two ways to live and you can only live in one way. Only one thing can rule your life. Either sin and death rule your life or grace rules your life through Christ. Now, the gospel not only answers this question of what rules my life, the gospel gets even more to the core, which is what Paul goes into in chapter 6, and it gets into this, this, this basic question, the, the main question what I'm asking, who am I then? Depending on which camp I'm in, who am I? And here's the, 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 the foundation of, of, of what I want to get at. The gospel says we are all united to someone. Kind of the same thing I was just saying, but we're going to say it in a little different way here in chapter 6. You are united to someone. You're either united to Christ, or you're united to that life of sin and death. This is what Paul wants to clarify. Now, Paul brings up this question at the beginning of 6. It's interesting. He says, what shall we say then? Verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, Paul has just said that if you're united to Christ, then when you sin, grace increases. 
Exactly, literally, to be more exact, it says grace superabounds. That sounds cool, doesn't it? Like kind of like superhero, you know? Superabounding grace. Every time I sin, grace abounds. Every time I sin, grace abounds. So the argument could go like this. Well, if grace increases when I sin, why not sin freely so I can get more grace? Or maybe you might say, like, if, if more sin only leads to more grace, why fight sin at all? There's actually a, a, a name for this. It's, it's called, and bear with me, it's a long name, but it's called antinomianism. Which, which literally means anti-law, against the law. It's the view that holds that under the gospel of grace, the moral law is of no use. We're not obligated to keep it. The view in its fullness simply says we don't have any obligation to obey God's commands because we are saved by grace. How does Paul answer this objection, this antinomian objection, this against the law objection? What does he say in in verse 2? By no means! Some older translations uh, say, God forbid! That's, That's the emphasis here. No way, Jose! See, the problem with antinomianism is that it has misunderstood the gospel identity. It misunderstands who we are. Who we are in Christ. It cheapens God's grace. It misunderstands what it means to be in union with Christ. So Paul wants to clarify that. He wants to show us and, and to explain to us, to clarify that just because we're saved by grace and just because grace abounds when we sin does not mean in any shape or form, in any way, that we should not fight against sin if we're in Christ. And he explains this, this doctrine that's called union with Christ. And, and guys, I'll just tell you, union with Christ is, is, is an amazing doctrine that in, in the minuscule minutes we have this morning, there's no way we're going to even get close to tapping into the, the depth of this. So if, you, if you're interested in studying more, just just go look up some, some resources about union with Christ. Sinclair Ferguson has a great book. You can start there. Rankin Wilborn has a great book. But here's what union with Christ, uh, uh, why it's so important. Pastor Kevin DeYoung says this about union with Christ. He says, union with Christ is the most important doctrine that you never think about. It's not just one of the blessings. It's the way of expressing all the blessings pertaining to our salvation. Another pastor says that union with Christ touches on the highest and most profound truths of the gospel and at the same time reaches down into the depths of the human heart to fill us with more joy and hope, more comfort and strength than anything else ever could. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm a little bit nervous here if I can really pull this out, you know. So what does Paul say about those who are united to Christ, those who are in union with Christ? Who are you if you're in union with Christ? And the guys, listen up. If you're in Christ, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian today, this is true of you right now. First, he says in verse 2, how can you or we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's saying that in Christ you are dead to sin. Not, Not like it's like you are dying to sin every day. No, you are dead to sin. Because if you've been baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death. 
We should clarify something here about what Paul is referring to with this word baptism. Isn't it nice how the Lord just arranges these things <laughs> with, with a nice, you know, baptism this morning? I remember when I, when I saw the text for today and I saw that we were doing baptism, I said, Dan, did you know that I'm preaching Romans 6 on Baptism Sunday? He goes, oh, that's great. <laughs> now, here's, the thing. here's the thing to keep in mind, though, about what Paul is using this word baptism. Guys, he's not actually talking about water baptism. Certainly would include what water baptism symbolizes, but that's not what he's actually talking about. Not in its fullness. You know what he's talking about? Is something else. Why, why would I say he's not actually talking about only water baptism? Because he says if you are baptized into Christ, you're baptized into his death. If water baptism is all that Paul has in mind here, then he's saying you get baptized with water and boom, you're in Jesus. That would be basically flying in the face of everything he'd already said, isn't it? That you work some way to get into Christ. Right? There's no outward religious ceremony. There's no outward religious thing. There's no outward symbol. A very great, awesome thing. But nothing outward like this can bring us into relationship with Christ in our hearts, with a changed heart. What he's actually talking about here is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. How do I know this? Well, there's a number of places, and we're just, we're just running out of time. I'm not going to be able to get to them. But go to 1 Corinthians 10. And you see here, Paul says that all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and, and in the sea. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the Israelites were found to be in relationship to Moses. They were found to be in, in, in a, in a, uh, uh, they had identity with him. They trusted in Moses. They trusted that Moses was following God. And what they do, they ran out of Egypt as fast as they could through the parted Red Sea against all, I mean, who in their right mind would walk through a, a sea on dry land with you got walls of water next to you? Nobody would. Unless you're trusting, you're in relationship with someone else that you're trusting in. Who's saying, follow me, I'm going to do this because God's telling me to do it. The second place in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul mentions that in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. The Holy Spirit is the one who does this baptizing. And that's what Paul's getting at here. That's the short of the argument. Paul is getting at the fact that the Spirit of God baptizes us or, or, or changes our hearts to bring us into relationship with Jesus Christ. Something that outward water baptism can symbolize. You'll notice that it's not something you can do. You can't unite yourself to Christ. It's a gracious work of God's Spirit. It's a work outside of yourself. And so, Paul says, for those who are baptized into Christ, those who are, by God's Spirit, in Jesus, united to Him, you're dead to sin. It... it, it it's not possible. What this means is it's not possible for those who are Christians, those who are in Christ, to willfully and unrepentantly continue in sin. It's, it's just not possible. He's saying that if you're in Christ, you're going to struggle with sin, yes, but you're not going to be enslaved 
and trapped in it forever. Maybe for a moment, but not forever. Because something's taken place in your life. What's taken place? Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So it means this, guys. If you're in Christ, if you're united to Christ, who you are is this. Your penalty has been paid. The guilt of your sin has been removed. The old self under the reign of sin is gone. The power of sin has been broken. You're set free to fight sin. Sin is no longer your master. Okay, okay, we're going to, we've got to edit here a little bit on the fly. So what does it mean, who am I if I'm in Christ? First, it means that you're dead to sin. I am dead to sin if I'm in Christ. I am dead to sin. The penalty of sin, the power of sin, but it also means this. Verse 4, 4b, and, and then kind of continuing down, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have, verse 5, been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Here it is. If I'm in Christ, I'm dead to sin. And if I'm in Christ, I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive to live. I'm alive to live and be who God made me to be. Without shame, without condemnation. You're free to fight against sin. You're free to walk in newness of life. You're free to live to the fullest. That's right now. Whether you feel it or not, that's true of you right now. If you're in Christ. Not only that, but you have a promise waiting for you because Christ is risen, Christ is seated in, in, in at the, on the throne and he's, he's at the right hand of the Father. You have the guarantee of eternal life. That the presence of sin will not remain. And so he says, summarizing in verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's who you are if you're in Christ. You're not under the reign of sin. You're under the reign of grace. So the gospel says there's only two ways to live. The gospel says we're all united to someone. Lastly, the gospel also says something else. It says that we're all instruments who serve something. We're all instruments who serve something. In fact, the gospel, what this is saying is what I do actually proves who I am. Verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Guys, what we want to think about when we think about this is, is not, well, if I'm in Jesus, then that means I, I'm, not, I, I'm not ever going to sin again. I'm not going to struggle. I'm in Jesus, right? No. You're going to sin. 
What this is saying is that if you're in Jesus, you are free to fight against that sin, to battle that sin, to say no to that, to think that sin has been nailed to the cross. I'm not going to let it have mastery over me anymore. And you know what? By God's grace, you will. Maybe not every time. Maybe not in every way. I'm reminded of that every day. My own home. How much I fail. I'm reminded of that when I get anxious. Anxious about the future. Anxious about the unknown. Anxious about all kinds of things. And I'm reminded, i got to battle this. This is not who I am. You see, we are all instruments who serve something. We either serve God or, or we serve sin. And Paul says, if you're in Christ, don't serve sin. Fight against it. Because the power has been broken. It does not have dominion over you. You think, think for a moment, if I, I used to build trains, okay? And I didn't, but let's just say I used to build trains. And that's, you know, I, I was a train builder. Great at building trains. Really good at it. Built great trains. And then I got a new job building houses. Now let's say I tried building houses the way I built trains. What's going to happen? Problems, right? All kinds of problems. I'm either going to have a great looking train house that no one's going to want to live in. Someone probably would actually. But it wouldn't work. Or imagine if I start attending a new school and I still did homework that the teachers at my old school gave me to do. Now that sounds even more crazy, doesn't it? This is what it's like when, when we sin, if we're in Christ. We're forgetting who we are. We're forgetting where we are. We're forgetting whose we are. But what does the gospel say about our identity? There's two ways to live. You can only live one way. You can either live under sin or under grace. We're all united to someone. We're either united to Adam, which means we're condemned sinners subject to God's wrath and judgment. Or we're united to Christ, meaning we are dead to sin and alive to God. We're free from the penalty and guilt of sin and we're free from the power of sin. And we have the promise that the presence of sin will be done away with forever. The gospel says that what we do proves who we are. That if we serve sin and we don't fight against it, we're willfully and unrepentantly just living in it, then we're still under the reign of sin and death. But if we are united to Christ, then we will fight sin. We don't always win the fight. We often lose the fight, but we're still going to fight. Because we're under the reign of grace and life and reunited to Christ. You might be sitting here right now thinking, okay, what now? You're either thinking, okay, it's confirmed, like, I don't think I'm in the camp of of Christ. Or you're sitting here thinking, okay, it's been confirmed, I'm in Christ, but man, I am really, really forgetful of who I am. You remember that painting that we looked at earlier? I'm going to show a picture of what the painting looked like in 2005 when they discovered it. If we can get it, there it is. That's the same painting. This is what it looked like before hours and hours and hours and lots of money put in to restore this painting. It's not quite so pretty, is it? But this is the reality of what that painting looked like. This is really what the painting was when it started. 
Friends, the fact of the matter is, who we are, who you are, who I am, on our own, without Christ, we're a lot more like this painting than the other one. We're, we're living under that reign of sin and death. We're, we're, we're living like a shadow. You see, this is just what makes the good news of the gospel so good. Because the gospel is not only honest with us about who we really are, only, only the gospel gives us courage to face who we really are. Without despair, without hope, or with hope, excuse me, because we have hope of something far better, something that is true right now for those who by faith receive it. See, Paul says this a little later in the letter. He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're trapped by, whatever mistakes you keep making again and again and again, there's no condemnation in Christ. So fight against it. And stop doing it. And when you come to Christ, when you, by the Spirit of God, are joined to Him, you are made new. The old self, the enslaved self that's enslaved to sin is put to death and you are transformed into a new creation. And something like this happens. Okay, let's show that video and see if it works. You ready? You see, it's only the gospel that empowers you to live your life to the fullest. To be who you were meant to be. Because just as you're no longer condemned when you're united to Christ, you also can't be separated from his love. You can walk in newness of life. You can battle that sin. And you can stand up saying, I know that death is defeated and by God's grace, Jesus reigns in me. Here's the good news, friends, especially if you're going, I don't think I'm in that camp. I don't think I'm in the camp of Christ. Believe. And if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right now. Forevermore. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth about who we are. And we ask, Father, that you would remind us that we don't have to be scared of the truth of who we are, but we can run straight to you, knowing that you know everything about us, knowing that you transform us and make us new, that the old self is gone, that we are no longer trapped and enslaved to sin, but we are brought to life. So Lord Jesus, help us to live under the reign of grace to the glory of God. Amen.